Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Dowrick. Hi, Ben. Howdy, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So, as always, we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two twin movies about a woman trapped on a plane with a charming man who reveals himself to be a criminal who'll kill her family (laughs) unless she follows his orders. It's Red Eye versus Flight Plan. Let the flying games begin. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) So, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 19th of August, 2005, Red Eye was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A woman is kidnapped by a strange on a routine flight. Threatened by the potential murder of her father, she's pulled into a plot to assist her captor in offing a politician. Uh, we'll get to the use of offing in a second, but Gabe, when did you originally catch Red Eye? Was it at the cinema? And what was that experience like? Ben, it was not. I did not see this at the movies. Um, I don't think I'd actually sat down and watched the entirety of this film until watching it for this podcast. There was definitely parts of it that I had remembered seeing, but as I scan my memory banks, I recall no such event where I watched it previously in its entirety. So it was a lot of fun to sit down and watch it for this. What about you? Yeah, this falls in that category of films I wanted to see, I didn't see, and I saw them for the pod. And it's becoming pretty clear that there are three types of movies, three subgenres of twin movies. There's the glory good times in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, when I was working at the Art House Cinema, seeing free movies at the adjoining commercial cinema, category one. Category two are, I guess, these movies, which I always wanted to see. They happened sometime in the 20 years since those movie glory days. And I didn't see them because the reviews were bad, or I noticed they were twin movies at the time and thought, well, one's going to spoil the other. And so I saw neither. The third category is probably where I saw one twin movie. I made a choice. I just doubled down on one of them. And it was either the one with the best reviews or the one that came out first. And this, these guys fit into that second category where I just watched them in preparation of this film thinking I would enjoy them and love them and watched them actually on video on demand and uh, an old DVD actually. And they were really good. So I'll get into my review in a sec, but why don't we jump across to Flight Plan because it was released a little bit later on the 23rd of September, 2005. Here's its synopsis from IMDb. A brave woman and her daughter are flying home from Berlin to America. At 30,000 feet, the child vanishes and nobody will admit she was ever on the plane. Gabe, talk me through when and how you first watched Flight Plan. I think I must have watched this on DVD in 2007 or something like that, somewhere in there. I, I, I rented it, rented it on DVD, um, Younger Listeners. You know, there used to be a, uh, a thing called a video store where you could buy and exchange money for a disc that contained the movie that you then take away for a couple of days. Maybe return it, maybe not, depending on maybe you're on holidays somewhere, you just keep the movie. That's up to you. Um, so hang on, this sounds like some sort of library of sorts you speak of. I know, I know, I know. Crazy, isn't it? Um, the, the disc cases would often be sticky. <laughs> the discs would often be scratched, but gosh darn if it wasn't a, a hell of a good time standing there amongst the aisles picking a movie. And that movie I picked that day, that fateful day, sometime between 2005 and maybe 2009, I'm not quite sure, 
uh, was Flight Plan. And I recall nothing of it. So it was really fun to watch again. <laughs> it's the joy of some of these movies, right? Even if they actually aren't terrible movies, you get to relive this moment in time which you know you've experienced but you have no memory of. Yeah, that's right. I kind of had some sort of vague, hazy recollection of maybe how the plot went, but there was enough in there, you know, after 11, 13, whatever, how many years, um, you're like, oh, yeah, sort of, maybe this guy's the bad guy, I think. Uh, but you can't really remember. So it's, 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 it was nice. It was very pleasant. And also, and I know we'll talk about this later, these two movies hark back to a, a bygone era of filmmaking, a bygone era. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Keep your powder dry, we'll get there. Powder dry. And I actually, ah, oh, watching these movies, I really miss that era. But we'll get to that, we'll get there. So let's perhaps, before we get to that review, jump into a bit of a history lesson a shallow dive into how these movies came about at the same time. And from my intense research, i.e. a bit of light Googling on my phone, nice. it appears that there is no connection anyway. In fact, these types of movies are the worst ones to try and get research on because they're not recent enough. They kind of come in that era where it was always before social media, um, Wikipedia was just sort of kicking up. They, they're not terrible enough to have a cult following of it's so bad, it's good. They're not good enough to have a cult following of it's so good, it's good. They're just sort of like middling movies. And as a result, it's really hard to find any background as to their origins. So it appears that both these films just came about coincidentally at the same time. They're both original stories, ostensibly. Uh, Red Eye was written by Carl Ellsworth, who quite remarkably, given the nature of it being a Hollywood movie, stayed on as the lone screenwriter for the entire duration of the film from pre-production to post-production. Flight Plan was more conventional. It was written originally by Peter A. Dowling and they brought on Billy Ray after that, who's quite a famous screen doctor and screenwriter and occasional really good director. Gabe, why don't you quickly give our audience who aren't you know, familiar with the filmmaking process, a bit of an explanation as to what a script doctor is. I mean, I guess as the development of the screenplay moves along, studios like to bring in writers to do punch-ups, uh, rewrites. Sometimes they focus sort of exclusively on one thing. Like I'm the, you know. And what's a punch-up? Oh, uh, like if you're like, oh, we want uh, the the to bring that uh, certain je ne sais quoi about the you know around the dialogue or something. You know, it's like uh, we just want to hit the dialogue. We don't want to change the story, but you know, we just need that uh, David Mamet patina over the dialogue. So hey, David, here's two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a week's work. We're not going to credit you, um, which is part of the deal. Um, but have at it. Um, Billy Ray is one of those screenwriters. In the, you know, uh, someone like Carrie Fisher was a very famous script doctor. Uh, she did punch-ups on heaps of films, uncredited. Um, like I said, David Mamet. Um, but, you know, you just bring them in sort of as production looms to just, you know, uh, improve the screenplay in some sort of area. You know, you might have a guy like the comedy guy or the action guy or the, you know, whatever. Um, and it's such a part of the process now that it's not frowned upon. Like it's the pre-production equivalent of doing pickups or reshoots and what they are is essentially you finish – shooting the movie, you then start editing the movie, you realise that you're missing a few scenes, you want to add a few scenes which weren't in the original screenplay to make it a better movie. And so you go back and reshoot some scenes or shoot some new scenes. 
This is the version before you start shooting while it's still on the page. And often we should add that some really powerful, successful actors actually have their own writers that will actually come and do a punch-up of the dialogue to sort of work more in the, the cadence or the voice that is iconic to that particular actor. I think Tom Cruise and Julia Roberts have people in their back pocket that do that. It's much like having your own hairstylist come on who really knows your follicles. Totally. I mean, Christopher Macquarie is basically Tom Cruise's pocket writer now. Great example, yeah. You know, uh, I think they just announced that he's going to come on board that out of spacey movie that Tom Cruise is doing as a, you know, Maybe they described him as a script consultant or something, which might be just a term that until they do, you know, WGA arbitration, he's just um, writing on it. But maybe he ends up with a screenplay credit, like on whatever that uh, Tomorrow Live. They changed the fucking title of the movie. What was it called? Edge of Tomorrow, which is great. Now called Live, Die, Repeat. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, I think it'd be incredibly, incredibly common in, you know, on, on films now. And it also became quite famous, didn't it, Gabe, around the mid-2000s when Judd Apatow kind of came to his own with a 40-year-old virgin where they'd get all of these comedians or comedic actors into a room to do a roundtable read where they sit around a table and essentially they just sort of like suggest jokes and they kind of banter off each other like they're doing a Saturday Night Live skit where they're just trying to improve it by working together for like two hours only to try to try and find a few gags. And I think one of the most famous stories is where the director, Tony Scott, who made Crimson Tide, brought on Quentin Tarantino to do some sort of Tarantino shtick. Um, can you recall the contributions that Mr. QT made? Uh, in that film? I mean, they're fairly obvious. They're all around, like, the which Silver Surfer is the best. I mean, they stick out like dog's balls, you know. Um, but I think I think on that that had um, Robert Town, Quentin Tarantino. Um, th- I think that's one of those movies that has like a real famous all star roster of uncredited rewrites. Yeah, it's often when the film is really dependent on dialogue. Like that film is a self contained thriller where they're just bantering backwards and forwards, arguing the whole time. There's not many opportunities to try and have you know action scenes outside the sub. So they are really relying on that dialogue being punchy or being funny or being dramatic. So you can understand why they brought in more than the usual script doctors to try and really beef that up. Yeah, totally. And, you know, like you said before, a writer like, you know, Shane Black, who I think did uncredited rewrites on Iron Man, you know, he can really write dialogue that uh, Robert Downey Jr. can do very well. Like it really falls, you know, they have a a copacetic uh, wheelhouse there. So it's unsurprising, like you say, when an actor is like, oh, this person really writes to my voice. Let's just bring him in everywhere. And I'm sure for those writers, you know, there's not the stress of having to hold the sort of, you know, be responsible for the the for the screenplay as much as just, you know, offer up some, like, here's some, here's some stuff, use it or don't, you know. I've got to say, I reckon before the term script doctor originated, there was a dirty term before that because the idea being that they give you a bunch of cash to work in a really short period of time, uncredited for your efforts. It sort of feels a bit like a dodgy prostitution deal, right? I'm sure they had a term before that was more negative than script doctor. And then one day a screenplay writer thought, you know what, I need to try and elevate this dirty experience that I feel like. Here's your money, don't say anything. We won't mention that we engage you in any way. So he thought, what's a profession that involves helping things or helping people that sounds better than prostitute. What could I possibly use? Ah, doctor. I am a script doctor. I will resuscitate this story 
and make it healthier. Totally, totally. Actually, isn't one of the most famous Doctor stories, it's got to be Shane Black being cast in Predator, right, and then doing rewrites during production to try and beef up the dialogue? Oh, yeah? I mean, to actually be cast in the movie and you're not an actor and they go, well, when our writer really handy, like at close proximity, oh, fuck it, let's just cast him in the actual movie so we can basically just be riffing in front of the camera to try and find some comedic moments. That feels like the kind of most extreme version of engaging a script doctor. Yeah, totally, totally. Um how did we get here? Do these movies even have script doctors, Ben? <laughs> Billy Ray. Oh, yes, Billy Ray. Billy Ray. Billy Ray. But Billy Ray always comes on and does, I think, more than script doctoring. So he comes on. It might star script doctoring, but he's actually come on as the second writer so many times. But he's actually written other screenplays himself from scratch, and they are spectacular. Um, I think he's probably one of those most unrecognised screenplay people outside the movie business, but it's incredibly famous inside the movie business. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I feel like he's probably written like 120 movies. Totally. <laughs> you know, I feel like his name pops up on lots of movies, but you go over to IMDb and you're like, oh, 24 credits. Huh. I, I swear there was more, many more than that. Oh, all right. <laughs> what about you, Ben? When did you see Flight Plan? Yeah, it's the same story as Red Eye. I saw it uh, at home. Um Saw it on DVD, an old DVD, unfortunately. So the resolution wasn't great in my big TV. And the film looks like it'd be really good to see in 4K or 35 mil at the movies. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's the end of the story. Um, it didn't suffer at all from being watched on a TV opposed to being at the movies. I don't think I saw it at the movies because something else came out or... Maybe I just thought it was too much like Panic Room, which we'll get to in the review. And I thought, ah, this is just Panic Room on a plane. Like, it looks really similar. Like, there's hiding, there's a kid, and there's a baddie in a small contained space. Uh, And the visuals look the same as well. So, yeah, it's just Panic Room again only, what, three years later? Um, But now that I've seen it, I, I really enjoyed it. And I'm actually surprised this film hasn't been more popular either as a genre of its own or just sort of like live longer, you know, on streaming services uh, beyond its initial, you know, life at the movies. Uh, Anywho, that's it. Unfortunately, no great story. That story wasn't bad, Ben. It kept me, (laughs) it kept me entertained. (laughs) I wouldn't describe it as edge of your seat, but nonetheless. (laughs) Uh, Let's jump to our review, mate. Let's start with Red Eye. Did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of the common premise it shares with Flight Plan? I think I think I described um, when we did the Terminal Velocity Drop Zone podcast, uh, Terminal Velocity as a 1990s Hitchcockian, uh, I don't know, film. Uh, this is definitely in that mould, but more so. I read somewhere that this could be described as strangers on a plane, which I thought, oh, that's a very funny uh, descriptor for this um, uh for this film. Which one is Strangers on the Plane again? Is it a movie? Which one? Yeah. Like, well, Strangers on a Train is that, that famous. Oh, Strangers on a Train. Oh, I see it. That's very, very clever. And it also rhymes as well. Yeah, that's very clever. Do you see what they've done there? So so they've actually replaced the word train with plane. Which happens to rhyme. So it's actually like double bonus points. Cra- crazy, crazy. I, look, I'm a sucker for this type of mid-budget, B-picture, uh would you call them high concept? Maybe not. I wouldn't call this high concept as such because I don't think the concept is original enough 
No. No, that's true. It's just a it's just a lady being menaced by a, by a guy with a stupid name. Um, but um, but I really like these types of movies. You know, it's not it's not going to change the world. I bet it wasn't the highest grossing film of two thousand and five. Um, but but I always have a good time with these sorts of movies. Um, uh, particularly now, you can look back on them as the sorts of movies that just don't really get made by studios. So so is it the best version of this type of movie? Is it the best version of a a, a, a movie where a woman is menaced on a plane? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. But, um, but you know, Wes Craven directs it with some panache and Rachel McAdams is a really great actress and I, Cillian? How do, tell me, Ben, how do I say his name? I think it's Cillian. I only know this because when he became famous... Cillian? ..from the Batman movies, I made an effort to look it up. Right. And his surname is... Merp he. Yeah, it's an interesting way. It's a bit like my surname <laughs> Phelps. The PH together combined Boom. actually are pronounced with an F like phone. Okay. It's a very distinct way of enunciating the word, which I think originates from England. But in America, it's probably definitely Cillian Merpy. Okay. Well, <laughs> he's very charismatic too. I do like I do like him. Oh, actually, I just realised. Is it actually Killian? Oh, maybe. Yeah, it could be Killian. Killian. Sam, if you know the proper enunciation of Killian or Cillian Murphy, just drop it with a beat now. Killian. Look, I, I really like these. Look, I really like this movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what about you, Ben? Look, I really enjoyed this movie. And watching both these movies back to back, two nights in a row, just makes my heart ache for seeing a movie at the cinema that isn't a superhero movie. And I don't want to rag on superhero movies for the sake of it because I actually, I think I enjoyed the first 80% of that 10-year Marvel movie run. Like, I was actually there for all those movies. I was there for those DC movies. I think I've actually seen Batman v Superman, uh, the less maligned version, the, the director's cut, which I quite like. I think I've seen that three times. So I'm not anti-superhero movies. Nerd. I know, I know. Gabe, what are your thoughts on Batman v Superman? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Um, and there's a one hour and seven minute podcast, which I think is our shortest podcast yet, on as a twin movie package, Batman v Superman versus Captain America Civil War. So if you want to hear Gabe express incredible enthusiasm for that particular movie, check it out. Nice. But I just, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie more than I expected. I think I didn't see it at the cinema and it's Red Eye I'm talking about now. Because I, I think I just saw it as like disposable, like I could just watch it on DVD at home. And now that I've actually seen it most recently, it's like, this is the problem, right? People will now only pay some exorbitant fee of 20 bucks a ticket or whatever, plus if you want to get food and whatever and car parking and babysitting, it adds up to like, you know, 60 bucks per person to go to a movie to see a roller coaster movie. And you and I, Gabe, are whinged about this on the mic and off the mic with Sam as well beforehand. So then you're in this situation where you find yourself, or I find myself 
somewhat perhaps being responsible for the death of the cinema or the death of the mid-budget film aimed at a you know over age 20 or over 25 demographic because I didn't show up. This is your fault. Well, that's it. I think I'm I I am like a bad boy Bubby, a famous Australian film where I've taken the cat in a plastic bag and I've accidentally killed it. I didn't mean to. It wasn't intentional. I was just curious to see what it was like to watch a mid-budget thriller at home and unintentionally I single-handedly kill cinema. That's a very specific metaphor you've used there, Ben. <laughs> yeah. All right. Of our podcast listeners, there's an audience of about four people in Melbourne and three in Canberra or Sydney who actually have seen that film and get that reference. Yep. But, yeah, basically, I don't know, isn't there like a Charlie Brown thing where he squeezes his dog too hard and the dog says, it's a bit too much? Wait, Charlie Brown tried to murder Snoopy? No, I think he just hugged him too much and I, maybe I don't think Snoopy stopped breathing. But Snoopy did say it's a bit too strong, like ease up. Wow, that's a that's a dark issue of uh, Charlie Brown when he smothers Snoopy to keep him quiet while the... <laughs> yeah, I think Snoopy and Charlie Brown, there was a movie set in World War II and they were hiding from Nazis in a cupboard and Snoopy started getting the hiccups and he put his mouth around Snoopy's mouth to try and keep him quiet and tragically he killed him. Wow, that's dark and also... Weird because that's a human and a dog. <laughs> anyway, I thought the weirdest thing there was the dog had hiccups. <laughs> ah, nice. <laughs> um, I think you're right though. Like looking at these movies, they are definitely the sort of thing that probably maybe felt a little taken for granted back back then. Um, exactly taken for granted. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, and you know, I think it's that thing where people think, "Oh, why would I see a movie like either of these at the cinema?" You know, they, they, they have some scale, you know, uh, planes explode, missiles get fired at hotel rooms, but they're, they're not Transformers, you know. Um, but it's a real shame because these movies do benefit from the sort of immersiveness that comes with going to the cinema. Like, you know, oh, I could just watch this on DVD at home. Like, or any genre of movie really that isn't popcorn, spectacular, stupid, large, you know, like romantic comedy, comedy, um, Thriller, um, and like I kind of wish I did see these at the movies because you know when it when you watch these types of movies at home, it's very hard for your hand not to slowly creep over to that phone. Just be like, I'm just going to check Twitter just for a sec, just for a sec. And you're looking down your phone, and bang, you miss the the reveal where it turns out uh, you know Australia's own Katie Behan is involved in the plot, or or Brian Cox's introduction. Oh, you know, it's a real shame. Yeah, it's interesting too because in watching these movies for the podcast, I often have my phone with Google Sheets, Google Docs open on my phone to write down, you know, potential nominees for our awards later on or any just sort of bullet points about my observations about the movie. Sometimes I even have my laptop there uh, with that kind of big bright screen shining off on the right-hand side next to me. And, of course, I will then just legitimately go on there and see an actor and go, oh, that woman or that guy's a – uh, that guy, you know, a possible nominee for the Stephen Tobolowsky Award on our podcast series. So I'll just go down this quick little rabbit hole to see who that person is and then miss this key detail where, uh-oh, spoilers, you know, Kate Bean, Aussie Kate Bean is in cahoots uh, with the baddie. And that would have been a great revelation to have discovered. And that I actually did commit the precise crime you described just then in looking for a, an award nominee. So... In the theatre, you're just locked in your seat and you have to watch it. And this isn't an obvious complaint. Like we always talk about 
people on their phones looking at Twitter or something whilst watching a movie at home. But it does make you appreciate that when a film is crafted for the movie, particularly a thriller where you've got that suspense very carefully calibrated and often shots without dialogue to reveal something. And if you're looking at your phone, you miss that crucial detail. Like think of that scene where, again, spoilers, you see Jodie Foster's daughter um, in, a, in a quiet scene kind of revealed to be alive. Like mm. if you miss that, you miss a major part of that movie. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's so easy these days. Um, look, if you're watching a movie at home, I don't, frankly, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Like if you want to look at your phone while you're watching, that's totally your prerogative or whatever, you know. I'm not here to judge someone's choice. Just don't live tweet the first time you watch The Godfather Part 2 or whatever. That's fucking lame. But, but you know, but this is the exact sort of movie I actually think benefits from going to the cinema that people just don't do because there's not enough popcorn, popcorn in it, which is, which is a shame and which is why, Ben, you have graciously taken responsibility for the collapse of the mid-budget studio thriller. So thank you for that. Well, it's funny, right, because I saw a very similar movie to Flight Plan, Panic Room I mentioned earlier, at the movies. I recall seeing this at an art house cinema in Sydney. Uh, again, David Fincher, one of the best cinematic auteurs around, who crafted a movie that just worked incredibly on the big screen. And I recall vividly, this is like 18 years ago, looking around the cinema and just seeing the light reflecting on people's faces and being totally transfixed by that swooping camera that went a bit over the top in terms of, you know, whizzing around the house to try and show the geography of the the space before the drama began so you knew where everyone was moving around in the movie, whizzing through a coffee cup and, you know, so on. I hate it. But, <laughs> well, that was, a, that was very over the top. I recall the experience, though. I don't think it would have sure. felt as immersed had I watched it on my iPhone or small TV at home. And watching Red Eye, I'm thinking – Look, uh, this has so many things I like about movies. It's set in one location. We've discussed before the creative challenge for a screenwriter, actually also in a director as well, to tell a story and maintain interest in a limited space. It's obviously very economical to do and a plane's a great setting because, you know, except for terminal velocity and drop zone, you can't escape the plane. So I like the craft of trying to keep me engaged and to raise the stakes beat by beat in one location. And th this film works really well in that regard. Um, I like, I like you know, the meeting of these characters. I like this sort of moment where Cillian Murphy, who's really well cast because he does have a slight creepy vibe and his eyes are this incredible, I think it's a blue, that they, they it's it puts you slightly off kilter. I think he's a really good actor to cast in this role. Like, He's not overtly masculine. He's not like dripping in testosterone with, you know, a huge beard. He's quite quite slight, uh, uh, freckly, sort of I'd call him attractive but not, you know, Brad Pitt style and slightly shy slash menacing. So I think he's really well cast in this role. And the way that they have that drink in this film where he invites her for a drink, she says no, she then look, goes to the bathroom and notices – what appears to be a scar that it's implied that she has either inflicted herself or perhaps an ex-lover has, and it turns out it's the latter, she reveals later on, and then decides to, you know what, get out there again and give it a go and 
go on this little brief date at the uh, airport with this guy and I don't know, like it just feels so unusual to watch a movie where we see two adults having a drink and the world isn't being inundated with aliens and explosions. Yeah, totally, totally. Hey, you know what's weird as well about both of these movies? I'm surprised that they released movies about uh, ostensibly about terrorists taking over planes only four years after 9-11. Yeah, I totally agree, but I'm even more surprised that Red Eye didn't try and incorporate that more into the plot. Really? I thought it was really bold that Flight Plan had the main character accused to Arab blokes of being involved. I would have thought that, you know, the, the villains in both of these films are white guys, um, which, you know, obviously uh, creates some separation between 9-11 and, um, and these films, unless, of course, you want to get, get into some big conspiracy thing, which is actually, you know, Ben's other podcast, 9-11 was an inside job with Ben Phelps. <laughs> Check it out. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> More popular than this podcast. <laughs> oh, it's crazy popular. I mean, you do say some pretty red-hot things on there, though, Ben, so I'm not involved <laughs> in that whatsoever. <laughs> That's just my side project with Alan. Is it Alan Jones? Uh, or, no. I don't know, David Ick, take your pick. Um, no, there's another, there's another Jones. It's the other American podcaster. Uh, What's his name? Oh, Oh, that you know the guy, I mean. fat cunt who rants a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I hate that guy. <laughs> uh, Alex Jones, yeah, that. <laughs> that's numpy. right. Anyway, um, he's a, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed you got him on your podcast. But, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but it's really interesting that I, for, only four years after, I, I guess it's just surprising that they, they, they went there. Or maybe the, the, the country was hungry for, for, for more. <laughs> I don't think anyone was hungry in 2005, which is only four years after 9-11, to, you know, watch a film involving potential terrorism on a plane. I mean, what's weird to me is the script would have been written before 9-11. They probably shot the film in around 2003, 2004 to release 2005. So they probably started shooting the movie two and a half years after 9-11 happened, right? And I kind of think it's weird that they didn't, acknowledge 9-11 just to basically, as they say, hang a lantern on it in screenwriting terms where you just address the question that audiences would have, which is, oh, it's all about Middle Eastern terrorists right now. Um, that's that's the, the flavour of the month. And I think that Flight Plane did a good thing in acknowledging it as actually a distraction and tapping into the anxiety and suspicion of the time. Yeah, totally. And then basically moving past it. Like, it actually took it and made it actually a better part of the movie, I thought. I thought Red Eye should have acknowledged it in some way and acknowledged the sentiment of the time because Red Eye to me feels like a movie that could have been made based on its plot and its themes in 1990, like a film where, you know, around the era of 91, 92 of In the Line of Fire, basically. Right. Or The Jackal, you know, 96, Ooh. right? Or it could have been made now. But there's no sense in Red Eye as to its time in the immediate wake of 9-11. No, I mean, it could almost just be set on a boat or a train or in a, in a, in a van. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I got the vibes of the Nicole Kidman, Sam Neill and what's his name? Billy Zane movie, Dead Calm by Philip Noyce, watching this movie. Like I felt like oh, yeah. you had two of the three dynamics from the movie, which I absolutely love, and that's set on a boat. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. And, I mean, I guess 
Red Eye definitely feels like the more, I don't want to say exploitative or B picture of the two, and I, I am absolutely not using that as a, <clears throat> as a slight or criticism. But it's funny watching the, I'm sure the director of Flight Plan is he European? <laughs> it's got like a. He's German, yeah. Yeah, it's got like a real. It's got a, like a European, European vibe to it. You know, whereas Red Eye, um, from the director of Vampire in Brooklyn, um, The Serpent and the Rainbow, and uh, Music of the Heart, uh, definitely has a kind of more like uh, exploitative horror-y kind of vibe, well, which I like. It's funny you mention that because that's both my criticism and my compliment to the movie. So I feel this film doesn't quite make the most of its concept in that it doesn't stay on the plane. Ah, mm. Okay? So let's just think about it. I think the first 20 minutes are before the plane. Mm -hmm. So it's a classic kind of three-act structure, like let's set things up and then we get on the plane at 20 minutes. And then I think probably 30 minutes in, Killian slash Cillian reveals himself to be the baddie, right? Then we have her on the plane for what's probably only about 45 minutes where she's, you know, fearing for her life, negotiating, et cetera. But then you've got Wes Craven, the guy who did Friday the 13th. Oh, hang on, that's John Carpenter, isn't it? Which one's Wes Craven? He's our – which what's what was his iconic horror movie? Ah, dude, The Hills Have Eyes. Sorry, Okay. The uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. The last third of this movie. Scream. <laughs> is a hor horror movie set in a house involving a kitchen with knives in the kitchen and stairs. Like you can totally just see that being his comfort zone, right? He knows the geography of a house and how to work that to try and, um, you know, garner that sort of horror you'd feel if a stranger's in your home. And that's kind of to me- a shame. Like, I would like to have seen how it works to make the entire movie on the plane. And do you mean not even cut away to the ever so slightly ludicrous stuff where, like, a missile is fired at the hotel room? Um, oh, I did. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. What's going on there? Actually, I had completely forgotten about that, but just quickly catch our listeners up to that particular uh, subplot. Okay. So basically, uh, Killian's character wants Rachel McAdams' character to move. Um, uh, what is he? Is he the Secretary of State? Something like that. Who's? I, I thought he was actually a company guy. I couldn't work it out. Oh, is he? Uh, whatever. He's some important bloke. She, he she works at a hotel. He wants her to move this guest who always stays in one room to a different room so that someone can fire a missile at the room and assassinate And that room has guy. a water view. So someone yeah, yeah. in a boat can get out a bazooka <laughs> and fire it from the water that. through the window with no guarantee of actually killing him other than basically taking advantage of the harbour views. I mean, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. You know, like I love uh, Hitman-type movies, but can't you just be like John Cusack in Gross Point Blank and like crawl in through the air ducts and slowly drip poison down a piece of string into a sleeping guy's mouth? Look, to, that's the thing is that they could have easily just moved him elsewhere and had a guy just burst out of a cupboard with a gun. Or as you say, like that person's implanted themselves in the floorboards or in a fridge or something and therefore isn't identified in that first sweep by his security detail and then comes out and shoots him. But it's quite unlikely that he's going to get killed. When you look at the damage the bazooka does, unless the guy's sunbaking in a pair of Speedos on the balcony 
or watching TV on the couch, a lot of that apartment isn't destroyed. In fact, they're all in the apartment when the bazooka explodes near the lift, and they're all fine. So it's unnecessarily dramatic and really leading into its B-grade vibe, I think, to go with the oh, bazooka. it's ludicrous. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. ludicrous. Yeah. Um, that being said, that ludicrousness aside, it, I, I do quite like how I think both movies have a slight problem, which they rely on a huge amount of um, uh, coincidence or the right thing happening at the right time for the villain's plan to succeed. But I think Red Eye actually does a better job of having the protagonist try and come up with ways to foil the villain's plans but fail. So, um, uh, you know, she writes a warning inside the, uh, a book that she gives to a passenger. Uh, she tries to write on the wall of the bathroom. Um, she tries to do all these things but, but, but Killian basically stops her at every turn, um, which is quite nice, um, whereas without getting too much to flight plan or like just getting into a little flight plan. There's a whole bunch of bits of flight plan that rely on, you know, when Jodie Foster gets on the plane, another family gets on the plane and they don't notice her daughter because her daughter is ducked below the seat in front of her. Are you telling me that the villain's plan relied on absolutely no one noticing this little girl? Like all Jodie Foster's daughter had to do to ruin his plan is just stand up or make a noise. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Let's, in that case, switch lanes fully and do our review of Flight Plan. So is that what grinded your gears the most, is that it's too dependent on Jodie Foster doing certain things for it to work? I mean, I guess that's the sort of thing you go along with in a script. I suppose Flight Plan, like I said a little earlier, does present itself as a very kind of classily made movie. It's it's quite nicely shot. It's European. You've hired a serious actor, Jodie Foster, you know. Um, it feels more austere, doesn't it? Like more controlled. Yeah, austere, that's the word. Yeah, yeah. You know, those um, those snowy, snowy locations. Um, I don't know. Anything that's European is suddenly classier. Um, but, but whereas Red Eye, I suppose, embraces its B-gradeness or whatever. Again, I'm not using that term as a, as a slam. I fucking love B-grade. Flight Plan tries to be A-grade, B-grade. But in, in a way, in doing that, it sort of exposes, I suppose, the contrivances of the plot a little bit more, you know. Um, and they do happen a lot. It does happen a lot, don't you think? Don't you think there's a whole bunch of scenes where you're like, oh, if only... Uh, you know, when, when Sean Bean's character, the pilot, is disembarking after being told to get off the plane, for the villain's plan to succeed, Jodie Foster has to not mention to to him that who's involved or whatever. It, I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of those moments, don't you think? Yeah. Well, I'm still unclear as to what the plan was. So this to me as is as flawed as the plan in Red Eye. So let me get this right. Okay. Peter Sarsgaard is a undercover air marshal. Right. The sort of person who became pretty common after 9-11. So that, I guess that taps into 9-11 as, as well, doesn't it? Like this is a new type of character we haven't seen on screen before. An air marshal. Air marshal. An air marshal is meant to look after you. Yeah. Okay. So the most trusted person on the plane and he has a gun. Now, it escapes me right now, but, oh, I was going to say what the movie is, but I just realised Armageddon. It's a great moment in Armageddon when they're on the fucking comet 
hurtling towards Earth. And then who's that guy, uh, William Fickner? Oh, yeah. Pulls out a gun. And I think it's Steve Buscemi or someone like that who goes, you've got a gun? (laughs) Where did the gun come from? Like who brings a gun on a space shuttle? And the, the point being is that in every situation of a plane, there might be one gun somewhere. But the definition of traveling, particularly since 9-11 in relation to security, is that it's very difficult to smuggle weapons on board. So, okay, now that I'm talking out loud about this, it's making me appreciate that they've kind of really leaned into the concept or the character of an air marshal. Okay. So the guy who's meant to keep you safe, the only guy on the plane who has a weapon of, you know, power, a gun, is actually a baddie. He's in cahoots with one of the flight attendants, fine. Uh, Looks like they're perhaps boyfriend, girlfriend, good times. (laughs) His plan is to set her up. Why? Because she is an architect slash designer of this particular plane and therefore will be an easier fall guy than someone else. Is that right? Because it doesn't make sense because why would you engage, why would you possibly set up the person who knows more about the plane than you do, and you have hid her daughter, you've kidnapped her daughter and hid her daughter on the plane, wouldn't she be the person most likely to find her daughter? Well, I mean, yes, and she certainly does try. You know, she uses all kinds of fancy plane terminology about aft decks and galleys down below or some shit like that. Yeah, yeah. But what's her motivation ostensibly going to be when she's arrested that – she wanted to get to try and kidnap the plane for $50 million because her husband died? Well, P- Peter Sarsgaard's character says they'll find uh, her with a bullet in her head and the detonator in her hand, you know, um, that she will have. But But even then it's like she needs to make demands for the money, you know, or whatever, but... Surely at some stage the money needs to end up in an account that his character can access. I guess maybe he's planning on then, you know, disappearing or something like that. But you're right, it's all very nebulous or contrived as to what... You almost think would it have been better if they had given his character a motivation of revenge or something rather than money? Because... Well, totally. Like, he's actually killed... Apparently he's killed... Her husband, right? Yeah. And made her resemble suicide. So he's actually happy to commit murder to an innocent guy to try and then upset her and get her to fly home to then ultimately kill her as well for the money. Well, well, no, they need the coffin that the guy is in to put the Semtex or whatever. Like that was part of it. That's the only way they can. Okay. Isn't the easier fall guy those Middle Eastern guys on the plane? (laughs) Like. Oh, yeah. I mean. Like that would make 10 times more sense, right? People are already biased against them. They're already being pigeonholed in the movie as potential terrorists. Wouldn't it be smarter from his point of view to set those guys up as the baddies and people are less likely to question that than a person who's a single mum who's tragically lost her husband um, and doesn't really have an axe to grind against anyone? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. Like it feels like something – went astray between the first draft and the shooting draft to explain that connection. Like, I agree. Like, let's say, for example, we always want to talk about what's the best execution of this premise, right? She's a designer of planes, right? No one knows planes more than her. Would it make more sense if there's a terrorist on board the plane and she has to save the day? 
and she's crawling around the space, a bit like in Panic Room, and she that's her superpower skill is that she knows the architecture of this tube flying, you know, 1,000 kilometres an hour through the air, bend the terrace, and she has to basically diehard style pick them off one by one. Like she knows the trapdoors under toilets or above toilets and so on, and it's kind of almost becomes a uh, revenge fantasy thriller. Like it's you know it's like almost Tarantino esque. Like you're stopping the next nine eleven because you've got superpower architect on board. That would seem to take advantage of her skills and a brand new plane that very few people would know the layout of more than this particular concept because this is a brand new plane they talk about over and over with upstairs, downstairs, and so on. It doesn't seem to be that important aside from a couple of times she pops through a toilet. Like it's almost the same the same trapdoor type uh, thing. There's a trapdoor. Like it's like it's like the air vent escape plan of every diehard ripoff. <laughs> nice, yeah. How big is the plane though? God, I've never been on a plane with a with a big stairway in it. Yeah, I know. And I guess that's also to me a bit of the get out of jail card of this movie is that by calling it a new plane they can just basically design it any way they like and you can't really question it because, eh, it's a new plane. Yeah. I would love to have seen if they could somehow do this with a 747. Right, right. Something like a, a single-level plane, not a plane with a... Well, I think 747s have that upstairs deck for first class, don't they? But it just doesn't have the very grand type of uh, stairwell that we see a guy walking down at some stage. Yeah, it's like an entryway. It's like a fountain on board. It's got like a petting zoo. It's too big. <laughs> um, you're right, though. I mean, but but I have to say, despite us seemingly ragging on these plot uh, plot holes, inconsistencies, character motivations, it's, it's still a heck of a fun movie. It's a great movie and it looks fantastic and I love the idea of any movie which has the person questioning their own sanity. And with, I guess since this movie's come out, that term gaslighting's become more oh, yeah. popular. Um, as a term to use, often used to refer to a woman who claims something and a man um, tells her that, you know, she's insane. He's gaslighting her. It didn't happen. Yeah. Totally. and didn't happen no way she remembered. Yeah, and I like it. The problem, of course, is, as you say, you've got to be really careful in laying those puzzle pieces together that they align because if there's one thing that can go wrong, like one person recognises that girl, the whole thing falls apart. And- that's, I guess, my biggest problem is that really, like, no one on the plane saw her with her daughter. And I think the movie's trying to make the point that, well, you know, we're all stuck in our iPhones. And um, actually, I think now it'd be actually easier to do this story now because people actually are looking at their iPhones the whole time. Whereas back then, I mean, maybe the kids are playing Snake on Dad's Nokia, but nice. people aren't weren't as engaged. Great re- great reference. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice, 2005. You have the best references, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think you'd actually tell that story more now and it'd be, a, it'd be a critique on the selfishness of society and the fact that people aren't engaged with their present. They're living in their virtual worlds of social media um, or YouTube and therefore I think it's – if I saw a 2020 version of this movie – and had, there were enough establishing shots of people on their iPhones, I would actually very much believe that people didn't see this daughter more than I currently do. Um, and it'd be a great commentary on mm. where we are in society right now. But in this movie, 
you barely see anyone on their iPhone at all. Uh, and the only people that seem to have seen the, the daughter are the other kids and they're not believed. That's fine because kids often aren't. It just seems too fortunate because I just can't believe that one person didn't see the daughter and said something. Like, I mean, yeah, at one point they uh, radio back. They radio back to the airport or wherever they find out that, oh, actually her daughter is dead. And they're like, Jodie Foster, your daughter is actually dead, you know. And she's like, oh, my God, maybe maybe I am crazy. But they would have had to, like, walk through an airport. With security cameras everywhere. Surely that exactly. So it's like I just kind of wish the plot didn't hinge so hard on that. But, um, yeah, I wish, for example, they had used tricks better than they currently did. Like there was one example where at the very start of the film they set up her whisking her daughter into the car and her daughter's hiding under the coat and they show a security camera there. Mm. Do you remember that scene? So the daughter's scared and it's cold outside and so to get to the car, Jodie Foster takes her under her coat and it feels like they're setting something up because you only see one person, apparently, go from the house to the car. So that would make sense if they maintain that through the airport or something like that, right? So they try to find security camera footage to verify whether there was a daughter and they can't find any. But they don't even go back to that particular security camera shot. They don't say, oh, we found some security footage outside your house and only you entered that car. They don't even refer to that, which is, makes me think, well, why did you show that? And she even says, I took my daughter under her ja- under my jacket. She was scared to get her in the car. But she's not saying that to defend some security footage which they have presented to her. It's odd. It feels like a few pieces are missing. Perhaps they're on the cutting room floor or something. Or there was a subplot where you did have this footage of her in the airport showing her walking there without the daughter and that explains from the perspective of Sean Bean why it appears the daughter didn't come on the flight. It just it doesn't seem more as tightly calibrated as it should for a movie that is so dependent on her being gaslighted. Mm, mm. Well, again, maybe the trick is you hire a, a really good actor like Peter Sarsgaard to play the to play the villain and hope that that will just, you know, paper over some of those things. And I think you agree, he's pretty good, right? Yeah, yeah, he's got a few uh, awards coming his way very shortly. Um, in fact, I think we could probably tie a bow on our review unless you had any final thoughts as to what they could have done better with either of these movies. I mean, I mentioned with Red Eye, I would like to have perhaps seen the last act play out on the plane, or if not the plane, maybe the airport. So at least it's kind of sort of in that zone still of being around aviation. And I mentioned earlier with Flight Plan, I would have liked to have perhaps, you know, had a different motivation for the baddie and perhaps her doing more of her diehard shtick. But any final pitches or takes as to how they could have done a better execution of this very similar premise? No, I think I agree with the things you've just said and uh, would also just reiterate that despite us knocking them, I still had great times with these movies. I just, I just love this kind of movie. And, and even the things that we've been talking about is almost kind of part of the fun of this type of movie. Like, you know, sometimes you feel like you're ragging on plot holes or something. But in a way, I don't know, that's kind of the joy of these sorts of movies, like saying, oh, well, I would have done it this way. What if you'd just done this? You could have just done that. Like, oh, to extricate myself from the circumstance, I simply would have done this. Um, and I, I like that about these movies. I think that's... 
that's that's part of the thing that makes them interesting. The because they are they are about a regular person caught up in an extraordinary situation. You know. Yeah, I agree, and you totally nailed it right then. They're ordinary people yeah. caught up in an extraordinary situation, unlike, for example, a superhero movie where it doesn't feel like there's any point in saying, well, I would have done this, or, hey, logically, why didn't this happen if that happened? Because the films are so fictional in their concept and they're not grounded that there's no point. <laughs> there's no point saying, why didn't Fat Thor from that last movie, Endgame, do so-and-so? Because you're already talking about extraordinary characters or ludicrous characters. So you can't identify as much with totally their motivations or their plans. Whereas, you know, in this one, everyone can pretend that they are Peter Sarsgaard or Jodie Foster or Sean Bean and how they would react to this movie. And it makes me again appreciate how little I do that these days because the movies just don't have – the movies often aren't of a genre that actually encourage this fun debate. And I agree, like – I enjoyed these movies and the fun part is actually tearing apart the plot holes and so on. But at least the film has a bit of a life beyond watching it mm. or at least when you're watching it, you kind of like interrogating it. I never interrogate a superhero movie. I just kind of sit back and it's a pretty passive experience. You're right. You're right. It's sort of joyless, that thing. It's like, well, I guess, you know, Thor has super magical powers that can change depending on the movie, whatever. I'm sure he could get himself out of there by some magic lightning shit. But 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 the 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 normal person caught up in extraordinary situations. I'm I'm a sucker for it. I'm a sucker for it, Ben. Actually, it makes me think. There's a new film with Russ Crowe coming out, Unhinged, which looks a bit like Changing Lanes meets Falling Down. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the thing we've lost at the movies. We talk about popcorn movies, about the roller coaster big ride of spectacle, right? And that's because the characters are as extraordinary as their worlds. Maybe that's just the thing we don't have. That's the genre missing from movies that's gone to TV. Ordinary people, non-extraordinary people in extraordinary situations, and it's really adults that often want to uh, experience that journey vicariously that the antagonist and protagonist are going through together. And it's perhaps people who are either – they're after more escapism, uh, and that might be younger people or you're tired after a big day at work – and you don't want to kind of like be in the shoes of that character. You just sort of like want to pretend that you are a superhero because you've had a shit day, you know, stacking shelves or punching the calculator or something like that. Yeah, I know after a long day of punching that calculator, all I think about is how I'd like to be Aquaman. <laughs> um, all right. I think we should jump to the awards. What do you say? All right, let's do it. Let's do it real time. Oh, actually, before the awards, let's do a little bit of a quick uh, side trip through trivia. What do you say? Oh, okay. Okay. Let's do that then. Um, notable similarities. Did you notice in Red Eye that Cillian slash Killian Murphy holds the knife like Michael Myers? Uh, well, I don't. Did you get that visual? Not really. Is that like with the blade pointing down? Uh-uh. Yeah, it's like a very similar knife. It looks like the poster featuring Michael Myers. I just thought it was a bit of a, a nod, a bit of a tip to the hat of, you know, to those classic sort of home-based horror movies. Slashes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go to uh, casting what shoulda, couldas. You're going to like this. Okay. Okay. Apparently, Mr. Murphy wanted the role of Jackson so badly, they took a plane, huh, ironic, from England to Hollywood 
two days before his wedding to have lunch with Wes Craven, and then Craven later gave him the part saying that Mr. Murphy's eyes won him over. Ooh, nice. Yeah, dreamy. Um, now, I've got two casting woulda, shoulda, couldas here that link both films together, and it is the most bizarre combination that you will love or hate. So apparently Red Eye was originally written for Sean Penn and Robin Wright. Wait, what? Yep, but get this. It gets better. I'm going to jump to flight plan and come back again. But Jodie Foster's role was also written for Sean Penn. Wait, what? Yep, and the original name, Kyle, was kept. So I thought it was odd that Jodie Foster's name was Kyle. I actually haven't heard of any women named Kyle. And that is the origin of the name. Wow. Get this though, six degrees of separation because coincidentally Penn's role in the game, the 1997 film directed by David Fincher, was originally intended for Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah, I remember hearing that somewhere. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So what do you think? Is it a better film? Because apparently Wes Craven actually wanted younger leads. Is it a better film having Sean Penn and Robin Wright? And perhaps Sean Penn's character would actually be threatening the life of Robin Wright's husband, I suspect, instead of her father. I I feel having Sean Penn in either of these movies would really strain credibility because I believe Sean Penn is probably not allowed on planes because <laughs> he, he strikes me as the kind of like corpulent kind of smoke on board, drink too much, pass out, punch a flight attendant, just be an all-round all leathery douchebag. So, yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> it'd be awesome. Well, see, the funny thing is whenever we talk about what would be a better version of these concepts that these twin movies share, we usually focus on the setup, the plot, right? And sometimes we might do a little bit of a tweak on the motivation or the backstory to the characters. But I don't think we really talk about the age of the characters or flipping the gender as much. And I think there's potentially an even better film of Red Eye, which I really enjoyed anyway, with older characters and something like uh, the pitch would be Random Hearts, which <laughs> I think is that film with Harrison Ford and what's her name? She was in... Uh, Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah, who I love. Like imagine, say, two middle-aged people who are very attractive though, like those characters at that time, right, coming aboard this plane and oh, it would almost be like someone like Robert Redford who is older in Indecent Proposal, but someone who's particularly attractive and charming. And they sit together, maybe in business class. Oh, yep. And maybe there's that vibe where Rachel McAdams' character, in this case, she would have been played by Robin Wright, um, is perhaps considering an affair oh, yeah. with this very charming person. Because if you think about it, right, you're in business class, you're enjoying essentially a restaurant two-star, two-hat meal you're getting alcohol, which is probably hitting you harder because you're 30,000 feet up, and you've got a captive audience next to you, excuse the pun. So it's like being on a date of sorts, right? Mm. Except you're not facing each other, so it's not quite confronting, but, you know, those little elbows could nudge each other. Nice, nice. And it'd be quite easy that if you're going on a plane, you often think I'm on a holiday or I'm between jobs from one, you know, work day to the next, I'll enjoy a glass or two particularly if you sort of start off in the business class lounge before, it's all free. Mm. And then perhaps she's thinking this is going the way of an affair and we, the audience, also think that's a possibility. That's like we think that's the movie, right? This could be basically the affair movie. And then 
the other character like Sean Penn or Mr. Murphy's character then reveals what his actual motivation is. And suddenly the person that she was considering cheating on, she now wants to do everything in her power to save. Oh, nice. I like that, Ben. That's very good. Very good. I particularly like that uh, idea of having someone who ostensibly rarely, if ever, plays villains, you know. Sort of like when Harrison Ford played the bad guy, spoiler, in What Lies Beneath. You're like, what? He's the villain? No, <laughs> not Harrison Ford. Not Mr. Ford. No, but I guess with, with Sean Penn, you'd be like, yeah, he's he could well be the villain. I, I can't imagine a flight plan with Sean Penn. I can't imagine Sean Penn crawling around through the plane ducts and stuff like that, you know. Well, maybe that's the sexist thing about flight plan, right, is that you could have easily have done the diehard version of flight plan with a male lead crawling around ducks, but- when it's a female lead, they go, oh, no, 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 we'll have a gaslighted instead. <laughs> well, I, yeah, but I think that, I guess, I think that works for it. You're much more easy to brush off the, you know, uh, concerns, uh, or it's more believable that people just sort of brush off this, this woman's concerns. Whereas, you know, Sean Bean's character, the pilot, might have taken the character maybe more seriously, you know, because of a kind of pre-existing sexist attitude or whatever if it was a man demanding answers. You know what I mean? So I think that actually works for Flight Plan. No, I agree. I guess it's – I think you could have actually had more crawling around in Flight Plan. <laughs> let's let's put a, a little marker. You're a big duct guy. You just love a duct. You like know? my ducks. Let's put a little flag, a pin in it, to discuss in our pitch later on All right. whether a sequel to Flight Plan could be basically be a diehard movie. Okay. We'll get back to that. Um, as for the other contenders in the casting woulda, shoulda, couldas, apparently the role that Rachel McAdams played was also going to be possibly played by Rachel Weitz, Amanda Peet, Nev Campbell, Jennifer Connolly or Claire Danes. Would you trade in your McAdams for any of them? No. No, she's great, Rachel McAdams. Yeah, she's, she's awesome. She's got real versatility as an actress. I love Rachel Weitz though. Rachel Weitz I really love. I think Rachel Weitz and Jennifer Connelly could have been great in this role, but I thought Mac Adams nailed yeah, it. Yeah, no, Mac Adams. Okay, get, get this then. Actors that were considered for the role played by Mr Murphy. Get this. Oh, this is gold. Okay. John Travolta. What? <laughs> Nicolas Cage. What? <laughs> Kevin Bacon. Uh, yeah, maybe. Willem Dafoe. No. Michael Pitt. Yeah, okay, maybe. John Malkovich. What the fuck? It's that, That's just too easy, that one. Edward Norton. Yeah, I can sort of believe that. And Ray Liotta. No, I mean, the thing about Ray Liotta, John Malkovich, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage is there's no universe where I believe any of those guys sitting down next to Rachel McAdams on a plane that she'd be like, oh, 55-year-old. You'd just be like, John Travolta, who's this lecherous cunt wearing a bad wig? <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, you'd you'd have cast Rachel White or Jennifer Connolly opposite those older actors, I think, to make it less sleazy. I'm sure, sure, sure. I guess that's maybe more like in the universe of the movie you were pitching. Yeah, you got to age everyone up or whatever. Or or you have Michael Pitt and Rachel White's maybe Ray Liotta. So she's considering an affair with the younger guy who's kind of being flirty. Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta already did this movie though. It was called Turbulence. Check it out. <laughs> 
Oh, I don't think I can. Dude, it's great. He plays like a he plays like a romantic serial killer who eventually kills everyone on board the plane. It's really good. Really? Oh wow. Okay. You know, it was back when Ray Liotta had that period of like sexiness. <laughs> it was a very small window. <laughs> I don't know. Women seem to be like his as if Ray Liotta out there out. As if Ray Liotta isn't out there still capitalising on his Goodfellas cachet by banging his way through 56-year-old New Jersey women at the moment. I can guarantee you right now. He's like he's like, he's like like Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler, you know? Just take it home, any old look bint. I, <laughs> I didn't think we'd get here in this podcast episode, but you've actually ironically raised a point that our awesome sound editor Sam raised, which is... What makes a male superstar a superstar? Now, okay, Sam, I want you to drop with some fat beats in the background, or as Gabe would say, some smooth jazz. Mm. Your theory, which I think goes along the lines of, insert here, Sam. G'day, Ben. G'day, Gabe. Yeah, we were talking about Jeremy Renner and how he failed to kick on as the heir apparent in the Bourne franchise or pick up the mantle of Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible franchise. Gillian. And I was saying that whilst he was great in The Town and Hurt Locker, he's, he's kind of an everyman in both those films and that to be a star, to be an action star, you have to have a bit more charisma and that uh, men want to be you and women want to be with you as an action star and Jeremy Renner has... Neither. Sorry, Jeremy. Killian Murphy. So, Sam, look, I agree with that theory. Uh, what do you think, Gabe? Uh, yeah, I'm, my whole life I have wanted to be Ray Liotta. Yeah, see, I think you're in a minority there because I don't think Ray Liotta falls with that superstar definition and that's why he isn't a superstar. I don't think you see Ray Liotta and go, I want to be him. I think you might think he's a, you admire him. Uh, but I just don't think it's someone whose slippers you want to slip into. No, no. But, you know, on a long-haul flight, if I sit next to him, I'd cop a cheeky wristy from Ray Liotta. <laughs> just to say I did. <laughs> just to say I could. <laughs> um, with no connection anyway to that previous line, here are the other alternative actors that were in flight plan, potentially opposite to Sean Penn. Okay. Look, I'm sure there's a turbulence joke around a cheeky wristy from Ray Liotta. Anyway. Let's move on. Let's, let's get on with it. Portia de Rossi. Okay. Christina Ricci. Okay. And who is Josie Davis? I don't know. Who is Josie Davis? I think it was someone in 2005 who could have had a career and that this was an opportunity that she missed because those three actors all turned it down. Wow. Josie Davis is regretting that. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Uh, spot the Aussie. So I think we'll start with the easy one. Flight plan two. Oh, yep. Two. Who are they? So we've got Kate, or as she was once known, Katie Behan, who uh, you may remember quite famously from Chopper and less famously from the Wicker Man remake. And the other one. Yeah, do you know who? Uh, was it was it Greta Scarchi? Scar- Scarchi? Yep. You got it. Yeah. I didn't even recognise her when I saw the film. I actually saw her name in the credits at the start and thought, hmm, interesting. She must have a decent role. I then watched the movie. I don't recognise her. I go back to IMDb afterwards in preparation for this pod and discover that she actually played the therapist. Mm. There you go. Uh, Red Eye, any Aussies pop up in that one? Uh, 
I didn't spot any in the cast, did you? No, I don't think so. All right. No. I didn't spot any in the crew, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, let's jump ahead to Big Trouble and Little Production. I couldn't find any sense that there was any uh, drama at all around Red Eye, but in Flight Plan, apparently the Association of Professional Flight Attendants <laughs> called for an official boycott of the film because it, they thought it depicted flight attendants as rude, uncaring, indifferent, and even one as a terrorist. <laughs> uh, God, yeah, fair, I guess. <laughs> um, okay, let's jump to the box office. Gabe, have a guess. Which movie was the box office champ? I'm going to guess Flight Plan. Yeah, you got it. Uh, Flight Plan, actually, it's quite amazing. Um, it did almost $90 million domestically. Plus 134 million internationally for a worldwide total of 223 and a half million dollars. That's not bad, right? No, it's not bad at all. Um, and also, too, like it was only made for uh, what's the budget? I can't find the budget here. It wasn't made for a, a big amount. In comparison, Red Eye, uh, it actually was originally budgeted for 44 million, but they slashed the budget, which is perhaps why they also lost. Some of those bigger name actors like uh, Robin Wright Penn and Sean yeah, and Sean Penn, John Travolta. But it was originally budgeted for forty four. Eventually made for twenty six million. Did fifty eight million domestically plus thirty eight and a half internationally for a worldwide total of ninety six million dollars. So ninety six million dollars of a budget of twenty six million. It's pretty good. Um, I just did a quick Google. Apparently, perhaps. If we are to believe these results, Flight Plan had a budget of $55 million US dollars. Okay, so that's double the budget of Red Eye, and I can see all that money on screen. Like, I actually think that's actually a pretty good budget. I mean, it's very similar to Panic Room in some respects, but uh, I think the set design in Panic Room would have been actually easier, and you would have basically just paid for a very long shoot because David Fincher likes to do 100 takes. But- I actually saw Bang for My Buck, you know, in flight plan on the screen. What do you think? Yeah, and given the amount of money it cost versus what it did at the box office, I kind of feel like if this got made today, you'd have flight plan two and flight plan three, you know, perhaps as smaller movies. But, I mean, it sort of seems like the thing that could kick off a a mini uh VOD franchise. Oh, like Deep, Deep Blue Sea 2 and 3. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Deep Blue Sea 3 is pretty good. That's what I heard. That's what I heard. I hear Deep Blue good. Sea 2, which weirdly they only made two years ago, so almost well, 20 years after the first film, yet they've suddenly, what, punched out 2 and 3 within two years? Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah. I guess the rights expired. T- anyway. T- 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 2 is terrible, but 3, would recommend. Okay. Got a really nice setting, a little atoll. Anyway. All right, I'll check it out. All right, Rotten Tomatoes, which movie do you think impressed the critics, first of all? I think like a lot of these movies, if they came out today, they would have got better reviews and I feel I'm going to be disheartened in a moment that these films probably were more poorly reviewed than I would have otherwise liked. Am I right? Okay, well, first of all, is your theory that your heart aches so much for, uh, you know, an an adult story that critics would just appreciate it more? (laughs) It pines. It pines. It pines. Uh, well, here it is. Red Eye scored 79% with the critics versus Flight Plans 37%. 
What? Yeah. Um, look, I'm pleased, Red. I got good reviews, but disheartened that Flight Plan was reviewed so poorly. I assumed both would be get, getting basically 52% or so. <laughs> yeah, totally. Equally. Um, as for the fans, have a guess. Uh both reasonably well-liked? Kind of similar. Red Eye scored 64% with the audience on Rotten Tomatoes versus Flight Plans 48%. I, I've got a theory that is because you've banged Jodie Foster and Peter Sarsgaard and got like a European director, there's more pressure on Flight Plan to be good. But because Red Eye has a smaller budget with less well-known actors directed by someone who's sort of famous for, you know, um, exploitation movies that they unfairly went easier on it and harder on flight plan. I think you're exactly right. I agree 100%. Which is unfair. I, I hear you. I hear you. All right. Let's uh, do the awards. Do you know any uh, fat beats, Gabe? Yeah. Boop, 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 boop. We do the awards indeed. No, actually, that sounds Can more you like auto-tune Hugh that? Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Let's auto-tune that. Uh, but didn't it sound more like, that was more like a Hugh Jackman kind of theatrical but musical, you, right? Mate, I feel like I'm watching Oklahoma right now. <laughs> it's the awards time. It's the awards yeah. time. Okay. At any any moment you're going to be cast as Wolverine <laughs> in a franchise directed by a sex pest. Good on you. <laughs> these biceps, these double guns, they don't load themselves. Okay. Best title. Uh, Red Eye. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think Red Eye. I think it's... I've always been. I've always found it very evocative that term, and for a thriller, it's a great title. Yep, I agree. Best poster, uh, Red Eye. Can you describe the poster to our listeners if they can't see them on their podcast app? Okay, so Flight Plans poster is just a big, big head of Jodie Foster where she's doing some sort of look as if to say, "Where's my daughter?" But that's kind of unclear. It's not even clear she's on a plane. It's like a still from uh, Panic Room. <laughs> totally, 100%. It's just her looking a little bit concerned and very generic. It's a terrible poster, yeah. It's, it's bad, isn't it? Whereas Red Eye, um, the poster that comes up first on IMDb, is you see neither of the actors uh, or you can't identify the actors, but it's her hand on the centre what do you call that, centre console thing, centre armrest? Yep. And she's gripping it as if terrified and and a man's hand is atop it as if is, you know, involved in some something bad is afoot. I'm, I would go one step further and say he's actually gripping her wrist. So it's, it's gripping her he's wrist. He's not actually comforting her. He's non-consensually no. holding her down. Wrist gripper. So just... I think it's a really, really good poster and I would argue one of the best posters we've talked about so far. Really? Well, I mean, it basically captures the entire movie in one shot. You don't see their faces, but you know that she's a woman based on the shape of her chest and her hand. You know, he's a guy based on his chest and his hand. It's quite confronting in some ways. Like it's quite aggressive, right? Mm. You see, you get the sense that someone is controlling someone else against her will. That's pretty much the pitch of the movie for about 60% of what you see on screen. Mm. Mm. Wow. And also have reading it red eye in red, which is also just an evocative um, phrase that not only do you associate with tiredness but also with someone being distressed or mm-hmm. crying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, yeah, I'm putting it down as potentially one of the top five posters we've talked about. Now, I'm not saying it's one of the top five of all time. I'm just saying 
for the twin movies we've talked about so far in the series, it's definitely a contender. Totally. I mean, it definitely captures the tone of the of the film. Whereas, if I was to look at this flight plan post, pl- flight, flight, flight plan, flight plan poster, I'd be like, I don't know what this movie is. Is it, is it got to do with the beaver? You know that movie? Like, who knows? Like, it could be anything. <laughs> uh, um, okay, I think that's unanimous. Uh, let's go to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time with these movies, starting with Red Eye? Any nominees? Hmm. Was this was this a big break for Killian Cillian? Well, he shot Batman Begins in 2005 as well, I think, or four. So, and he'd already had... 28 Days Later, but this was obviously a bit of a jump into bigger movies. It was around the same time. I think he'd shot stuff but hadn't quite gone to the cinemas and, you know, launched him into a more of a Hollywood career. Uh, I'd say he's a good nominee. Jumping over to Flight Plan, this was the film debut of Matt Bomer. Sure. Bomer. Sure. So I guess he's a nominee. Okay. What about Robert Schwentke? The director. Oh, yes. Because what what did he do before Flight Plan? He directed a couple of uh, German movies. Okay. I I reckon he could be our nominee and winner. I mean, he's literally jumping into a Hollywood movie. Yep. Okay. All right, let's put him down as a winner. That was an unexpected nominee, but a deserving winner. So Robert Schwenke takes it away. Good on you, Schwenke. Okay, jumping onto the... Before they were famous award, or blink and you'll miss them, starting with Red Eye. I'll give you a clue to potential nominee. Okay. But she's up for another award coming up. Okay. Is that the clue? Jaima oh, sure. Mays, who plays Cynthia, who's basically the young woman who's sitting in the hot seat back at the uh, hotel desk and talking on the phone a lot to Rachel McAdams' character. She's the woman who throughout all of was it all of Paul Blart Mall Cop? I thought was Anna Faris. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so confusing. She's also weirdly she was actually an epic movie, which is or feels like the type of movie that made Anna Faris famous as well, right? Oh yeah, scary movie and yeah. Okay, well yeah. Well, okay. So she's a nominee. What about Flight Plan? Who have we got? Uh, well, I guess. I mean, I guess Paul Matt Bomer again could be a nominee. Um. Yeah, I would say. I would say. Uh, I'm going to say, Jamie Mays because she goes to do do a bit after this, but she's become another award very soon as well, potentially with Mickey Rourke. So, I'm putting her down. How about you? I mean, this was was this literally Matt Bomer's first? Yeah, it was his first. First movie. Yeah. And it is called the Before They Were Famous Award. Oh, yeah. Okay. I concede. I mean. Boma, Matt, Matty Bomer gets it. There you go. People remember him from then Magic Mike, The Nice Guys. Missing out on playing Batman. Oh, really? Superman. Superman. Oh, did he, did he, has had to then. Twice. What? He went for auditions for the 2006 version by the guy you mentioned before, Mr. Brian Singer. Right. But also the Zack Snyder one as well. Yeah, right. And I guess now he plays Negative Man on Doom Patrol. <laughs> Does he really? Yeah. Wow. That's a big fall. Negative Man, whose power is being negative. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a downer. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you missed out on playing Superman twice in big movies to launch your career, 
you'd be feeling pretty flat as well. The, the, the character foils uh, plans by just being like, do we have to? And just <laughs> nags them until they're like, fuck it, you know? You know what? It's just not worth it. <laughs> Negative. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, all right, moving on. The Tommy Lee Jones Showstiller Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee in The Fugitive. So, Gabe, in these movies, who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Uh, I've got down for Red Eye... Brian Cox as a nominee. God, I love Brian Cox. How about you? Any contenders? Well, no one can really contend with Brian Cox. Oh, well, he's uncontendable. He's the greatest Coxman of all time. Um, <laughs> How about Flat Plan? I thought Greta Scacci. Yeah, yeah you just, until you had to look up. That was Greta Scacci. Well, that's it. I didn't know it was Greta Scacci, but I actually thought she was really good in the role. Like, she's on the screen for a very short period of time. And I thought she was great because she walked that line where you weren't sure if she was a goodie or a baddie, if she was in cahoots with Peter Sarsgaard or was just doing her best as a therapist who happens to be available and on the plane. Totally. I mean, this sort of award, Sean Penn, Sean Penn, Sean Bean would usually be such a contender, but he's kind of, he's not really doing much in this movie, is he? He's sort of just a bit- Well, apparently the director, Schwenke, Schwenke. Uh, cast him because he actually- Ed Schneebly. <laughs> What's that? Ed Schneebly. Who is Who's that? Ed Schneebly? I don't know. School of Rock. It just reminds me of the name. doesn't matter. Wow. Digression. It's very confusing. It is. Apparently Sean Bean was cast to play against the types of characters he played like in the James Bond movie where he's often a villain. So the idea was to try and make you think he might be in cahoots oh. with Pierce Sarsgaard but isn't. Oh, okay. Because, you know, he can be slightly menacing. Oh, yeah. It, it like does that thing where he like dies in everything, right? Uh, Sean Bean dies in everything. Here's a clip show. Yeah. That- so he's either a goodie who dies or he's a baddie who lives. In this, he's just a goodie who lives. And this one, and he didn't have much presence on screen. So yeah. not a nominee. That's right. So it's 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 Cox versus Scarchy. Okay. Well, give it give it to Scarchy. Okay. Coxman's going to get an award later on. Yeah, that's right. Moving on. One of your favourite awards, the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Mm-hmm. Many times. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in either of these movies? Mm. That's a tough one. Yeah, well, it's tough but also because the cast is quite small with both movies. Uh, I mean, you could nominate Mac Cash, who plays Headphone Kid. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm glad I don't see him in stuff. I yeah, I, I didn't have many. I had Jamie Mays again, who played Cynthia, although she did go on to do things like Paul Blart. Mm-hmm. Again, Another podcast episode which we encourage you to revisit from the vault. Uh, in Flight Plan, um, Kate Bean, the Aussie, what do you think? Mm. Well, she sort of went on to, I guess this was a, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, she's done a lot of telly since. Um, I just feel if you're in this role. Since Flight Plan. In a Hollywood movie in 2005, you'd be wanting to sort of like head in the Rachel McAdams direction, I would have thought. I feel like it was probably the film that she was in that came out after this that would make her much more of a contender for this award, which was the Wicker Man remake. Oh, so was she in that as well? Uh, she was the the lead uh, the lead for male. Okay. Well, I okay, she's a nominee. All right, so unfortunately, Aussie Kate Bean gets the award. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, we're looking at the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies? And was it their career high? Okay, interesting. Rachel McAdams could be a nominee for Red Eye. 
and obviously Jodie Foster for flight plan, any other contenders? doesn't have to be their career high, but who kind of like nailed the movie? Killian Cillian? Yeah, I thought he was too cliched baddie. I thought Rachel McAdams was much better than him, personally. Oh, yeah, totally. Sure, sure. But he he's still playing the guy who gets stabbed in the neck and has to like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just... You know, wander around and doing a croaky voice. I just think it's hard to steal the show when you're doing those theatrics myself. Okay, fair uh, enough. What about Flight Plan? Um, I don't know. Who you got? Who you got, Ben? Jodie Foster. Ah, classic Jodie. She's always solid. She's always great. Jodie Foster never does a bad performance. She's always believable. She's always grounded. She always seems to track her emotions in a f- movie quite well. Like, she must be very good when, the, when you obviously, you shoot movies out of sequence. I always feel she's consistent through the movie. Um, I think, you, look, I think you are 99% right there. Jodie Foster is never bad in a movie except in that one movie where she does the South African accent and lives on a space station. Which one's that? Elysium. Oh, no, that's not Jodie Foster, is it? Elysium? Oh, yes. Yep, you're right. Um, Apparently she really wanted to work with that director and then agreed to that accent. Uh, She, unfortunately, you are right, she is terrible in that movie. And I think that's probably the only blip in her career. Oh, maybe maybe Nell, (laughs) the movie Nell. What are you talking about? She does all kind of stupid ass accents. Like, I like uh, just just a little divergence. Like, I hate it slash love it in movies where actors have to do made up languages, whether it's dumb Elvish in Lord of the Rings or Nell's language in this. I can't think of anything more excruciatingly embarrassing than being on set while an actor is like doing like made up language. Made-up language. And then having some- Maybe it says something about Australia and our vernacular, but I've got to say that Aussies like in Lord of the Rings, Hugo Weaving and Kate Blanchett, they somehow pull it off. <laughs> no, they don't. It's so dumb. It's so dumb and embarrassing. And then, you know, there'll be- Look, I'm sorry for all the people out there who speak Klingon or whatever the fuck, but it's just dorky. And you know they had some sort of like- uh, language expert on set to give them pointers about made-up vernaculars and so on, which I'm sure is really interesting and stuff for those dorks. But god damn it, I just I just think about how how goofy it would be on set. I, I hear, I hear talking in gibberish. So, um, well, we've got to name an, a winner here. So it has to be Rachel McAdams, right? Well, yeah, okay. Let's give it to her. let's give it to Rach. All right, moving on. Next award, best dialogue. What's your favourite quote? Because these films don't feel like quotable, but did any jump out? Uh, long answer, no with a but. Short answer, yes with an if. And? And uh, no, to be honest. I can't remember any any lines um, that really stood out. Yeah, I can't think of anything. I went back to IMDb to try and find something, and all I found was Captain Rich saying quite coldly, a teddy bear does not constitute an inaccurate passenger manifest, which is just... I guess a line that's kind of clever. But, yeah, um, there there was nothing. I agree. Let's move on. Like, these films were very unquotable. Agreed? Agreed. All right. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award, starting with Red Eye. I think we know the winner here, right? Well, yeah, I mean. Mr. Murphy. Killian Murphy. And fairly so. I I, I do appreciate the, the, the choices he makes. Um, what about flight plan? Well, if you think of that iconic scene in Predator where the camera dollies in 
as Dutch played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And who's the other guy? Apollo Creed. What's his name? Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers. Do that muscular kind of hand grab. Oh. I feel like Peter Sarsgaard, guard, Peter Sarsgaard and Mr. Murphy are doing that same thing between these two movies, just locking hands with little skinny white biceps is trying to flex to say, who can chew, who can chew the scenery more than each other? He's got that uh, that sleepy-eyed thing, though, Mr. Sarsgaard, you know? Very sleepy, very sleepy. Um, what do you think? Totally. I agree. I feel like he's played this part in lots of movies, Peter Sarsgaard, but then when I checked his IMDb, he hasn't. You know, it's like, um, I think he, is he married to Maggie Gyllenhaal? I think he might be. Exactly, yeah. I feel like she's played that part that she plays in that movie where, you know, uh, Denzel Washington has to get to a safe house. I can't remember the title of the movie. But where she's like the 2IC in a room with computer monitors. I feel like she's played that 100 times, maybe only twice. Well, she played it in Olympus Has Fallen, I think, as well. Oh, did she? Uh, I think so. Or White House Down. White House Down, I think it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the one where Jake Gyllenhaal goes back in time. But that might be a different actress. That might also be... Source code? That might be, that might be not Maggie Gyllenhaal. That might actually be Vera Farmiga. Oh, you're who right. Who was married yep. to Peter Sarsgaard's character yes. in the movie Orphan. What? Oh, very, what? Very confusing. What? Very confusing. Oh, look, here's the thing. Peter Sarsgaard as well, I think, unfortunately, comes across as a bit creepy. Oh, smarm. 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 A lot of smarm. So is it, is it an education? What's that film he play, is in with... Um, the actress from Drive. An education. An yeah. education. He's great because he comes across as being charming but sleazy at the same time. In this film, he's kind of the same. Like at the start, they set him up to try and be an innocuous character who's complaining about kids crying around him. But if that's him trying to be heartwarming to a stranger to convince them that he's like, just like them, he's not an air marshal, he's a regular Joe who's unhappy with noisy kids, and having a little rant. Mm. He comes across as just a whiny bitch. <laughs> Fair enough. So <laughs> I've got, uh, yeah, I've got Mr. Murphy for Red Eye. Okay. So uh, let's give it to him then. All right. Moving on, the Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Uh, I've got Brian Cox for Red Eye. I mean- uh, Totally, the, sure. Yeah, and Flight Plan- no one really jumped out. I think everyone was quite happy to be in that movie for the cash and wasn't slumming it. And I suspect Jodie Foster actually, you know, wasn't doing it for the money either. Although it is a very similar role to Panic Room. You could argue that she wasn't stretching herself enough. No, and before I rewatched it, there was chunks of the movie that I actually thought were Panic Room. You know, like in my mind, I even thought, oh, maybe is this the one where Kristen Stewart, is Kristen Stewart her daughter in this one? Or Erica Christensen, who is in... Flight plan, play the daughter in Panic Room. You know what I mean? Anyway. Well, Erica Christensen, who I really like, and she was in uh, the, the great TV series Parenthood based on the movie Parenthood. She's fantastic, but she could be in a whole podcast series called Hollywood Twins, which we might do after we finish our run of twin movies, where she is a dead ringer for, oh, what's her name? Now I'm just drawing a blank. Uh, the one from the Bourne movies. Oh, Julia Stiles? Is that her name? Yeah. Julia Stiles and Eric Christensen look almost identical to me. Yeah, right. And for about 15 years, I always thought it was Julia Stiles in Traffic, not the other one. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, so that could be episode two if episode one is Anna Faris and the woman from Red Eye whose name I can't... Yeah, yeah. Um, look... <laughs> Jamer Mars. Yeah, that's right. And then episode three could be Hardy, Tom Hardy, and the guy that was in an upgrade. Oh, Logan Marshall Green. Okay, sure, sure. Logan Marshall Green, that's episode three. So what three episodes? Maybe episode four could be Jessica Chastain and Bryce Dallas Howard. Yep. Look, I feel it's very important that we really stay within our lane here and just do white people because, God damn, could you imagine? It's like, ah, if we, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm tugging right. at my collar thinking, no, let's, uh, anyway, let's stay away. Yeah, Look, okay. <laughs> back to the awards. If we're going to give, let's give it to Brian Cox. He's your Uncle Argyle from Braveheart. I love him so much. I agree. Easy winner. All right. The Stephen Tolowski Award, a.k.a. Hates That Guy, named after the actor playing Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Uh, Gabe, which actor triggered Hates That Guy when he or she appeared on screen? I mean, we just gave him an award, but Brian Cox is clearly one of those types of guys, right? Yeah, but I've got actually three others. Okay, well, hit me. So in Red Eye, I've got Angela Patton, who plays Nice Lady. She's the woman who has a book, oh, the book's given to her oh, yep. by Rachel McAdams' character. Mm-hmm. I've seen her in heaps of things. She's actually in Drumroll, Sammy, Drumroll. Groundhog Day. She's the woman who runs the Airbnb downstairs. Oh, okay, yep, yep. I think, and goes downstairs, you know, for breakfast every morning. Sure. So surely Angela Patton playing Nice Lady has to, in Red Eye has to be really up there to win this award. She, she is definitely one of those actresses, if you look her up on IMDb, you'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, her, that lady. Totally. And in Flight Plan, I had Erica Christensen, as just discussed, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but also Brent Saxton or Sexton. Oh, yep. He's the guy with the goatee who's balding, who's quite uncomfortable and particularly prejudiced against the two or three Middle Eastern passengers. Yep, yep. He's been in heaps of TV and stuff like that, always plays a cop or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. Oh, I think we should give it to, based on the connection that you pointed out, Angela Patton. Yeah! Excellent. I was so thrilled with that one. Okay, moving on. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. So, Red Eye, I've got Brian Cox again. 220 credits on IMDb and you want more. (laughs) (laughs) It's not enough. It's not enough until Brian Cox is in every single movie. (laughs) Which I would also be totally fine with. (laughs) (laughs) See, you totally tripped me up last time and we did the Rogue Nation versus Spectre podcast series where I made the same comment about being Rames not being enough and he has 174 credits. It can never be enough. I can never get my feel, my fix of Ving. And it goes with Brian Cox as well. Like, so, so you just can't get your fill of Cox. No matter how hard you try, uh, there is a hole in you that demands yeah, to be. Wow, you walked into that one, Ben. That's, there's, I just have this hunger for him. Yeah, that's right. I just set the table and you just served that's it right, up. That's right, yeah. You, you, you knew it would happen. It's so predictable um, that we'd go there. Anyway, uh, yeah, look. Look, I too hunger for more cocks, so let's let's give it to him. All right, moving on. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage in Gone in 60 Seconds. Oh, yeah. Who steals the cake? Uh, we've got a great one. We've got a great one here, don't we? Who? No. I mean, there's only, what? The absurdly named character. Oh, yes, of course. This is one of the best ones we've ever had. So in Red Eye, what's, uh, what's Killian's name? Jackson Ripner. Jackson Ripner. 
aka Jack the Ritner, aka Jack the Ripper. I mean, who actually suffers a serious neck injury as well. I, I think if you're reading this script and you're like, who's this charming fellow who's just turned up to try and? Oh, his name is Jackson Ripner. Okay, I can see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, in Fight Plan, just actually both films have a lot of characters named by their attributes. So Mr. Loud, Mrs. Loud, Brittany Loud, and Rhett Loud. <laughs> so they actually gave the kids' first names. They kept the uh, surname of Loud. I love it. That's Maybe that name is Loud. Who knows? <laughs> possibly, possibly. But look, it, it's Jackson Ripner all the way. Yeah, I agree. Okay. All right, we're coming to the home stretch. The Memento Award name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. Now, I can't answer these because I watched these just last night, the night before. But for you, 15 years down the track, which movies came on and you went, huh, I can't recall that? I guess I forgot the sort of ludicrousness of some of Red Eye. Totally forgot they fire a rocket at a hotel. I recalled it being much more contained. And in Flight Plan, I guess I forgot that they did the stuff with the um, Arab blokes just because I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's, that's a fairly bold bold choice. Okay. So there can only be one. So so it's uh, rockets. It was so dumb. <laughs> it's ro- Yeah. It's so, it's, it's, I, I wonder if in the version that was going to be made for $44 million instead of the eventual budget of around $25. Oh, yeah, more rockets. That they had more rockets. And they went, okay, we've got to like lose some rockets. You've got one rocket and that's it. Right. <sighs> Needed more rockets. Oh, well. All right. Uh, the Die Hard Award, um, named after the influence of Die Hard in inspiring a subgenre like Under Siege. So did either of these movies do the same? Uh, no. I mean. No, I mean, look. And they tap into that whole idea of a single location. I mean, the writer of Red Eye also wrote Disturbia, which was considered to be such a rip-off or homage to... Vertigo. Uh, Rear Window by Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. Some, uh, no, it's Rear Window. Hey, wait, Sam. Yeah. Edit me out getting that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, don't edit this out. Don't, I want the world to know that gave confuse those two movies. <laughs> I'll kill you, Sam. Um, but um, Disturbia, similar location. Uh, mm. They were sued for it because it's so similar to Rear Window. Red Eye, same writer. Mainly single location. I mean, it's basically three locations, right? Sure. Airport for 20 minutes, plane for an hour, 15 minutes at a house. Flight plans, one location, two. Uh, but we've had Passenger 57, Executive Decision, Airport, Airport 77. You know, there's plenty of movies prior to this that were set aboard planes and, and a few after. Let's. Uh, yeah, these films basically followed trends, didn't start them, yeah. and they won't inspire new trends. Totally. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Here we are. So, no winner there. All right, Gabe, it's come that time of the podcast. The Milking and the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runway bus in a crowded city and then just plop. Dit on a very slow cruise ship. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Red Eye or Flight Plan. Now, they're both movies set in a plane where a woman's trapped. She meets a charming guy who reveals himself to be a criminal who wants to kill her unless she follows the orders he gives her to save her family. So they've got that in common. We need a sequel. 
What's it going to be? How are we going to make it? Go. Uh, okay. So both of these are about a regular person in an extraordinary situation. I don't like it when sequels go, hey, I was a regular person in an extraordinary situation again. You know, it really feels like- You mean like Die Hard too? Well, yeah. And it's like, then you got to hang it. Oh, how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? You know? So, so I think both of these movies would totally lend themselves to in-name sequels, but- sort of come up with a, a new idea or new characters. All right, so first of all, let's look at it this way. Flat Plan made about $250 million or so around the world from a budget of 50-ish, so it made money. Red Eye cost about $25 million and made about $100 million. They both made money. They've both got stars. I would say that you're as likely to get Rachel McAdams back and Killian or Cillian Murphy as you are, and they're both in Red Eye, Jodie Foster in Flight Plan. The question is, do you want to? Uh, is it necessary? Do we want to tell the same story of either of these films as a continuation or do we want to do like a kind of, you know, one of those DVD, video on demand ripoffs where we take the brand, like the American Pie movies, like American Pie Bandcamp, and then just switch out the characters but keep this kind of basic concept about, you know, someone – innocently trapped on a plane and trying to fight for their life and save themselves and someone they love. Well, uh, you brought up uh, Bandcamp. Uh, what I guess those movies do is they choose, they get a character who is a supporting character, you know, Eugene Levy, and he is consistent in them. So we could have, for instance, a sequel to Flight Plan where maybe Erica Christensen's character is now the lead or a sequel to Red Eye where perhaps Jack Scalia's character, who is like the the... CEO or the secretary, whatever the fuck he is, and he is now the president or something, you know. So we could take some element who isn't Rachel McAdams and Killian Murphy or, you know, Jodie Foster and Peter Sarsgaard, although the villains are dead, and, you know, um, and, and have them be consistent. Maybe Sean Bean has found himself in a new circumstance. I, I, maybe I wouldn't find it too hard to believe that he is piloting a plane again that has a some sort of you know, shenanigans aboard. Okay, so options are we either do a situation like Die Hard where we do a flight plan two where Jodie Foster's character finds herself in a similar situation and maybe she climbs through more air vents and so on on a submarine or in a cruise ship or something like that. Or we do a red-eye one where perhaps Rachel McAdams' career has gone really well and she finds herself perhaps in an Uber with a guy like <laughs> Killian Murphy and things go wrong. And it's basically, I think there's actually a oh, wait. TV show on Quibi or something, which is essentially this. Uh, and there's also a Sundance film as well with one of the guys from Stranger Things. But basically it's the Uber driver who goes around killing people. That's one version. And the Quibi version is a ripoff of Collateral where it's an Uber driver standing in for the position of Jamie Foxx who drives around someone who does a series of hits that night. And she could be that Uber driver, for example. Oh, yeah. I mean, another way is we could have a, an incident aboard a plane. Maybe it's the same plane that flight plan was set on and none of the characters that we recognise are in it, but halfway through someone needs to get some advice from the person who designed the plane, so they call Jodie Foster, who... Is not on the plane, but is now giving, you know, tips and hints as to how to crawl through the ducts or maybe some kind of engineering thing from the ground. Oh, I like this. Yeah. So what 
It could be basically Die Hard meets Flight Plan. So imagine you've got like a diehard character, an innocent person who isn't John McClane, and that flight attendant perhaps is doing some work when the, fl- when the flight is overtaken by terrorists, and then she manages to call back to head office. Totally. So- and Jodie Foster puts on a little headset, pulls out the schematics of the plane that she designed, and then basically is sort of her guardian angel walking her through the plane, teaching her how to sort of like unplug electronics and do something. Yeah. So it's kind of like she's doing the same thing as Jodie Foster did in Flight Plan, but the stakes are higher because if that comms cuts out at any stage, which it will happen throughout the film, she's alone and can't save the day because she's a humble flight attendant, not an expert architect or designer of planes. That's right. Jodie Foster is basically the Reginald Vell Johnson character from Die Hard. The Sergeant Al Powell, the cop on the ground, whom no one, they don't meet until the end. Or aren't there films like <laughs> The Rock? You know, you've got like sort of the person that oh, yeah. helps out, guide the way. I mean, I guess you'd be doing it remotely, unlike Sean Connery's character who actually goes, you know, scuba diving and joins Nick Cage on the journey. Mm. But it's the same idea, right? It's like a mentor-protege relationship. Totally. Or- how about this? We just blow her up in the first scene. Like executive decision. We take a hero and get rid of them. Yeah, you know, they're like, it's like The Rock where they're like, there's only one person who knows how to sneak back aboard this plane. She did it before when her daughter was missing and then she gets on the plane, bang, her head gets sucked out of the exhaust. What if the daughter from the first film grows up to be a flight attendant and she's the one that's get coached through how to save the day by her mum? Ooh. Okay. Oh, I like it. I like it. I like it. But maybe their relationship is strained somehow or something. So at the same time, oh, yeah. They haven't spoken for 10 years because of this scarring experience and basically they're reunited over a comms network to save the day. Yes, that's right. And through the course of it, they repair the broken relationship. They say those things that they could... They never could. They were just waiting for a, a high-pressure, high-octane situation to be able to say, Mum, I love you. I like it. Mm. How does it end? What's our third act? Well, I mean, apart from saying I love you. Well, I, I figure that basically she's going to do something on the plane. Jodie Foster said, right, you're going to have to set up an explosion that creates a hole inside the plane that will suck everyone out. You've got to make sure that everyone's got their seatbelts on first <laughs> and it will suck out most of the terrorists, right? But if we go pear-shaped and the plane will crash... So this is your chance by pulling this lever or pushing that button, this could be the beginning of a saving the day or the end. But wait, who's the, who's the, who's the villains here? I love you. Is it just, is it terrorists? Are they? Well, they, they say, look, a movie is as good as how good your villains are. And we've described some pretty interesting protagonists here. But you're right, like, isn't the best villain in their own minds, they think they're a hero in their own movie. So mm-hmm. what's a motivation that's fresh and also grounded that we could have for our villains that doesn't necessarily have to relate to the air marshal antagonist in flight plan but is, you know, unique? I mean, it could be an air marshal again because that's always interesting, but it could be the pilot. Oh, uh, yeah. Who could be potentially like suicidal, which is one of the theories behind one of those planes that crashed a few years ago. Oh, yeah, which was that M370? No, whichever one it was, that Malaysia Airlines flight, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess we don't want it to just be another movie about a guy trying to steal $50 million, right? 
Yeah, I think it can't be about money. And I always find it more interesting if someone's actually doing something for good. So I like it when you've got a situation and you, what's that expression? That one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what if we have someone who comes on board the plane, they're idealistic, they're perhaps in their early 20s at uni from Brazil or somewhere, and they're trying to do keep the plane at ransom to get a government to do something good. It's a bit like the character we've talked about before when we pitch these types of ideas, uh, Ed Rock's Ed Rock, Ed Harris's character <laughs> in The Rock. In The Rock, sure. Where sure. it's a baddie who has, had, has a good ambition and the right sentiment but the wrong execution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what could that leverage be that they need? Could it be perhaps say, uh, let's say it's a Chinese university student who's demanding the freedom, the release of a series of Chinese students from Hong Kong that were unfairly jailed for protesting um, undemocratic elections. Uh huh. Okay. Sure. Or and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, Go on. no. I like that. I like. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, something, something. So something. free, free, free these people, or everyone on the plane dies, and perhaps some people on the plane might include perhaps say an influential politician or someone of royalty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe these these people know something and there's government people who just want to shoot the plane down, you know. Maybe they're flying over non-American airspace, but maybe they're flying over, you know, Chinese or Russian airspace and uh, there's there's a desire from some, uh, some, from some other villains on the ground who just want to make the whole thing go away, you know. Probably like various conspiracy theories around things like what if we take you know it's like just pulling stuff from the from the headlines really what was that plane that was shot down over Russia by the Georgian separatists like you know that happens in real life it does but I also just thought of some other fictional reference which we just walked pretty closely to before oh okay what if it's like The Rock right where what if the ambition is like humanitarian like freeing these unfairly jailed protesters but then. Once they get close to getting what they want, a bit like in The Rock, the two or three other accomplices say, actually, you know what? We don't care about freeing those people. We want $50 million. Oh, nice. So you have your cake in it too. And so now what happens is the two villains are kind of butting heads and perhaps an uneasy alliance forms. Oh, I love an uneasy alliance. Yeah, I know you do. Uh. Between the humanitarian leader who never wanted cash in the first place and perhaps our character, who's the daughter of Jodie Foster. Yeah. Look, if it's a race against time with an uneasy alliance, mate, I am there. So how do we land this pitch, to excuse the pun? How do we bring it home? How do these two come together to save the day? Do they jump out with parachutes on? Does she take over the plane and land it? Uh, do they somehow, you know, get the villain, the, the other one, sucked out of the plane? Um what do you think? I think all of the above. I think you want you want <laughs> you want you want the the hero and the villain to team up to take out the other villains. You want them to have to try and land the plane together because the pilots are dead. You want the hero to have to maybe cover up for the for the uh, the the original villain to allow them to somehow escape. You know. Um, oh, like the end of um, the Fast and Furious. Basic. Yeah, or the end of The Rock. Basically, you want to transplant the entire plot of The Rock uh, on onto a plane. On a plane. Excellent. All right, and the very, very end, uh, a bit like in the final scenes of Armageddon where we see the character reunited with his wife and child. As they're walking down the tarmac, we see Jodie Foster waiting there for her daughter. 
They've rekindled their family relationship. They'll be together again and they hug. I like it. Or there's a smile. A smile. Flight plan two, huh? And what's, what's the title? We need a title. We need a kick-ass title. We're taking the brand of flight plan. We're trying to lure back Jodie Foster and really get this studio executive to really buy into this idea. What's that title going to be? Well, we need more really, really cool, like, flight terms, like. Or we just do flight plans. No, no, no. We can <laughs> We can do better than that. Uh, uh, what have we got? Uh, course deviation, dead stick, delta wing. Do we keep the name flight plan or do we abandon that? Oh, yeah. Flight plan two, colon, Longitudinal axis. Uh, <laughs> flight plan two colon. Uh, Turbulence. Well, <laughs> flight plan two colon. <laughs> we Risty from Ray Liotta. Uh, uh, <laughs> flight plan two colon. Oh, terminal velocity. Wind shear. Flight plan two colon. Drop zone. <laughs> Altitude sickness. How about flight plan two colon high octane? But what, like, like they, they, I guess they're starting to get into this sort of director vod, but car, like flight plan two, deadly cargo. Flight plan two, you know, something cargo. What about something really like out of the left field? Flight of plans. Ah, uh, flight of plans. I hate it. <laughs> All right, we need a title. Quick, 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 quick. Wristwatches. Well, look, we're bringing back everyone. Just call it Flight Plan 2. Done. Okay. But- Don't overcook it. Done. And that is how we make a sequel to the Jodie Foster starring vehicle, Flight Plan. Gabe, love this episode. Love these movies. Uh, Hollywood, please make more of them for the cinema so Gabe, I can watch them on video on demand later on. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. That's right. <laughs> All right. But, but as we established, it was Ben's fault. Ben's fault. <laughs> that's right. And only mine. We're in this pr- pickle. All right, yep. let that, let's uh, tie a bow on it. That brings us to the end of the show. A huge thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, who has made this episode sound pretty damn sweet, I'm sure. And if you've listened to some recent episodes, it's really adding a bit of, a bit of flair, a bit of audio magic, uh, some sick beats. So you can catch Sam as at Showtown Sound on Instagram. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work in Musings this week? Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find this podcast and all my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed the show, hit us up on social media and share it with your mates. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Bye-bye, Ben. <laughs>